time. My PhD is not in technology. <laughs> I'm reminded of that constantly. I want to thank you because I left Dallas, Texas, 90-something degrees. You brought me to this. <laughs> I have three boys, six, four, three. I love them, but a break every now and then is not a bad thing. <laughs> so you all are thanking me for coming. I thank you for bringing me here, uh, here today. So I had dinner with Pastor George, and it's funny because people were saying George. I was looking up, and uh, Pastor George and a couple of the elders. And one of the questions that I noticed you always asked me, you thought I was just kind of like dozing off at dinner, but I was actually paying attention, was why did I write this book? And my answer, which I think is pertinent to hear, is I feel that if Christianity means anything, then we should not be sounding like the rest of the world. And on racial issues, we should offer something that's different, something that's effective. I'm not talking about spiritual by and by, waiting for heaven, heaven something that's unique. And 2006, when I wrote the book, I didn't see that. And that's why I wrote that book. I still don't see enough of it. And so with all that happened last year, I found myself brought back into this conversation. In fact, I will have a new book coming out in February uh, of 2022. So, yeah, 2022. So that is going to, you know, my book was 15 years old, is 15 years old, and so I wanted to update a little bit and also contextualize it because I think some of the things I talked about in the 2006 book don't quite fit with what we're having today. So that's what brought me to writing this. I come at you as a Christian scholar, and both parts are, are important to me. My Christian faith is important to me. My scholarship is important to me. And so I'm going to introduce both to you. I'm going to start off with the scholarship. And so you may feel like you're back in college. But trust me, we're going to get to the Christian part, too. We're going to get to scriptures and stuff like that. I, I, I promised the pastor I would actually talk about scriptures. So it's not going to be all standard deviation and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, so we're going to do both. So the question is, can Christianity teach us anything unique about racism? Is there something about our Christian faith that puts us in a way to give us insight that may be missing otherwise? And that's what I want to try to challenge anything about today. So let's look. A racialized society. And that's a society wherein race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships. George, the pastor, was talking about how the criminal justice system has a different impact depending on race. So being a person of color means you have a different experience in the criminal justice system. You're going to be more likely to be arrested, more likely to be found guilty, more likely to serve heavier sentences. It's going to impact us. We live in a racialized society. Our society basically says race matters. Now, this does not mean that we live in the society we did 100 years ago. No. We don't live in a society of racialized slavery. But race still impacts us in, in our life, uh, in our social relationships. We know that our race impacts. When people look at me, they see an African-American man. And they react accordingly. 
That doesn't mean they always act negatively. I'm just saying that my race matters in my encounters with people all across. When I'm pulled over by the police, which happens a lot less now that I've gotten older and wiser, when I'm pulled over by the police, the police officer sees an African-American man there. Could that even work to my advantage? Maybe the police officer says, well, you know, I don't want to get in trouble for racial profiling. Now I'll just let him off with a warning for this going 85 and a 2055. Probably I'm that fast, I don't deserve a warning. <laughs> it could. But often it could act toward the negative. So we live in a racialized society. Because of this, we have contrasting views about racism in our society. One view is that racism is something that is overt, only done from one individual to another individual. So it is racist if I say, I don't like you because of your race, therefore I'm going to treat you badly. Or it is racist if I use racial insults. Or it's racist if I, in my class, say, you know, the white students, you all have had too many, too many breaks. I'm taking three points off your next test. That is this vision of racism. It's overt. It's done from one individual, usually to another individual, or it could be to a group of people. And what this has led to is an approach known as colorblindness. That the way we deal with racism is we ignore race. If we treat everyone as if race does not matter, we're not being racist as an individual, and therefore racism is gone. So that's been one approach to dealing with racism in our society. <clears throat> Another way to view racism is that racism is structural as well as individualistic. So it's not just about the individual, it's our social structures. And social institutions can perpetuate racism even when individuals do not intend to be racist. So I use this as an example. Jim Crow South, separate but equal. If you were a waiter in a restaurant that did not allow African-Americans, it does not matter whether you yourself are racist. You're acting in a social institution that disadvantages African-Americans. If you are a guard in an internment center in California during World War II that imprisons Japanese-Americans, it does not matter if you as an individual are not racist. You're operating in a system that is harming Japanese-Americans. That's structural. And so this has led to an approach, and some of y'all have read my book, and so this would have been the white responsibility approach. Today I call it anti-racism because it's a more common term. In fact, I'll be honest, I did not know what to call that fourth approach in my book. Uh, I wanted to call it whites are evil approach. <laughs> True story. My publisher said, that's a little harsh. So. I said white responsibility to describe it. I think today anti-racism is a term that captures it quite clearly. And there's a lot of talk about anti-racism. And you can look at it as an approach of, look, racial issues are predominant. It's structural as well as individualistic. We have to be very intentional about it. There, there are problems that we're gonna look into it, but that is an anti-racism approach. Okay, so these are two approaches which people tend to have. I know in my original book I had four, and those approaches are still there, multiculturalism and then conformity. But I found that over the years, those have waned in importance. And so 
I don't talk about them as much, although in the question and answer session, if you want me to, I can. All right, let's first look at colorblindness. Is colorblindness viable? For colorblindness to be viable, we have to be in a society where we are treating everyone equally racially. In other words, it would make sense to ignore race if race no longer matters. But if race does matter, then it does not make sense to ignore race. So does race matter? Well, let's look at what research says. Over the past 25 years, there's been no decrease in racial discrimination in hiring. And we know this through something called audit studies. And what an audit study is, is you take a resume, and one resume, you, you use things such as names and other things to say, indicate this is an African-American or Hispanic-American. Another resume, you indicate it's a white American. You send resumes to different companies, and you see you get callbacks. And you calibrate the resumes to make sure that they're roughly equal. And what we found out is, in this study done in 2017, for the past 25 years, the evidence of racial discrimination, meaning that equal resumes, one by a white, one by a person of color, the white resume is more likely to be called back for interviews, possible jobs, than the person of color. That's not decreased over 25 years. There's what we all call driving while black. Do we pull over people more who are African-American? The research says yes. This particular study looked at Ohio. There's other research that looked at several other states. Basically, looking at who's pulled over, how many people are on the road, are certain groups more likely to violate the laws, meaning they deserve to be pulled over more? The answer is no. Uh, blacks are just as bad as drivers as whites. Uh, and what we find is that African-Americans are more likely to be pulled over than European-Americans. That's what this research shows. So once again, we are, the reality is not colorblind in what's happening here. And you can think about, the, going back to this one just real briefly, think about it this way. This is the start of that criminal justice system, right? So African-Americans are more likely to be pulled over, more likely to be charged, given the same amount of evidence, more likely to be arrested, more likely to be convicted. We, there's jury studies that show this. And research shows that they, more, they pay a longer sentence. So this is just the start. And so it, it may sound like, well, it's a little irritating, you get pulled over a little bit more, but it's the start of the whole system. Resident segregation still impacts people of color. And this is just one of the ways that this study shows, and that's in education. If you have a black school and a Spanish school and a white school, and we know that the black school tends to do better, worse than the white school. And so if you live in, in a black neighborhood, you go to a black school, the education is not as good, and that's going to impact how you're going to succeed. I didn't go to a black school when I went to high school. I went to a Spanish school. It just happened to be, you know, just happened that way. And what was interesting is in the city that I lived in, there was two white schools, a black school and a Spanish school. I went to the Spanish school. And the Spanish school was, was the best school in the city on industrial arts. Every year they build a home from scratch. And they were one of the best in the state. When it came to academics and education, I was one of the few students who went on to college, my school. The students of the white schools went on to college. 
in essence, what my city was doing was the Spanish school says, you're going to be our workers. The white schools, you're going to be our leaders. And then evidence of racism in the police and practices of medical health care providers. About, they looked at about 39 different studies, and about 26 of them they found there was evidence of racism. Sometimes it was in the attitudes they had towards people of different races. Sometimes it's what they prescribed for medicines or for procedures. But there is evidence of racism within our healthcare system. As we look at COVID, we know that there, there are different rates of infection by race. Part of it is probably due to some of this racism here. So colorblindness it only makes sense if we can say, look, hey, everything's equal now, let's ignore it. But everything's not equal. And none of this depends on people, well, maybe the last one, being individually racist. Is in our social structures that work against people of color. So colorblindness does not work. What about anti-racism? Now, to get a sense of what anti-racism is, it's proactive in approach. So anti-racism is, look, you have to be very proactive in dealing with racism. You can't just sit back and say, everything's good. You have to figure out what you're going to do and do it. It focuses on unfair advantage or privileges of being white. If you read the anti-racism literature, there's a big focus on showing on how being white has these unfair advantages, privileges. Some anti-racists talk about implicit bias. So some of them say, well, there is hidden racism, but it's in this sort of implicit bias, this sort of measure of implicit bias. Taking action to dismantle all aspects of racism. Racism in, in our structures as individuals. Some anti-racists talk about ending whiteness. Now, this can be a confusing concept, because you can say ending whiteness is that like genocide or anything like that? Uh, what anti-racism talk about ending whiteness, a lot of it is cultural aspects they see as problematic in European American society that, per that perpetuate continuing racial disadvantages. And so they talk about this sort of ending whiteness as a way to address the problems they see in our society, and, and they sort of label it as whiteness. And listen to people of color rather than taking over. So instead of whites taking over, listen to people of color and bring people of color to the conversation. Now, this is anti-racism in theory. What I did was I read people who are anti-racism and read their books. And what I found is in doing that, that there are some, some laudable things to anti-racism. But there's also problems that begin to arise when I look at research about anti-racism. For example, let's talk about implicit bias. And I don't want to get all too nerdy on you or anything like that as far as statistics. I'll just say that we don't know whether or not implicit bias really leads to prejudice. We just don't. We can measure what we think is implicit bias, but we've not found good correlations to that in actual actions of prejudice or discrimination. And so it becomes very tricky to say implicit bias is the source behind what's happening here, because we really don't know that. And people who go around saying, well, what about implicit bias is doing all these sort of things? That's not what the research is really showing at this point in time. But there are other issues. 
For example, diversity training has little long-term effect on prejudice. You do diversity training and you do a, a, a post-test right after the fact, you get reduced prejudice. You do a post-test six months later, you don't have reduced prejudice. So on the one hand, because some of the solutions some anti-racists propose is we've got to train people. Well, it's not working. I mean, maybe it, it's, it feels good philosophically, but it's just not working. Diversity training generally does not work. And then this was an interesting study that I came across. Cooley et al. talked about privilege. And they saw that teaching about privilege does not increase sympathy for people of color. The idea was we teach people white privilege, they feel better for people of color. They found that people who already were sympathetic to people of color, they didn't increase in their sympathy, they already were there. People who are not sympathetic, they increase their sympathy. What it did do was create less sympathy for whites. So you teach about white privilege, and then you look at a marginalized white person, a, a white homeless person, for example. You, and there's a tendency to think, well, you have white privilege, why are you homeless? So overall, teaching privilege actually decreased overall sympathy for marginalized folks, instead of increase, increasing sympathy for people. And this is a fascinating study here. I want to spend just slightly bit of time on this one. Dobbins et al. was looking at how can we have more managers of color hired? How can we hire more people of color in manager positions? So they looked at companies, and I forget the exact number, I think about 800 large companies. And they looked at what they were doing. They looked at the, their approaches towards hiring more managers of color. And so some companies were, were doing diversity training. They were putting grievance, these sort of grievance committees together to help address these problems. They were trying to uh, look at the job test to make sure they were fair. They were very proactive in, in, in tackling these problems, a very anti-racism approach. They came back five years later. They found the companies that did that actually had fewer managers of color than they did five years before. The ones who were successful did something different. They went to their white managers and said, how, should we, how can we improve our diversity training? They put them in charge of doing diversity. And they found out five years later, they actually had more managers of color. So in theory, an anti-racism approach says, well, if you want to, in whiteness, you have to be very proactive and you have to put in this diversity training, you have to do all these things as far as grievance. But in reality, you actually have fewer managers of color five years later. So in the practical world, there's really not much support for anti-racism as far as dealing with racial issues. So this is what I would argue is how people have approached dealing with racial issues. Either ignore it or anti-racism. Neither one of them has really been that successful. So let me switch gears a little bit and get out of scholarly mode and get into more of a uh, Christian mode. So this is why I think both approaches lack. I think this is why I think they both fail. They lack a notion of human depravity. The notion of human depravity. So what do we mean by this? Scriptural backing for human depravity. And some of you all are probably going to know these scriptures pretty well. Uh, 
The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Genesis 6, 5. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Romans 3, 10 through 11. The natural man does not accept the things that are the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Human depravity is that we as individuals are not perfectible, that we fall short. Now, this does not mean that every single thing we do is evil, okay? This does not mean that we're just evil and that's all the only thing we do. But it does mean that we are overconfident in the good that we do do. That we, that there is, that there is a fallen nature to us we don't appreciate. And I tell you, nothing brings us down more than having very young kids. And we have very young kids that, here's the difference between me and my wife. My wife is a kid person. I am not. I've become a little bit more now that I have three young boys, but I'm still not totally a kid person. When my wife sees a baby, oh, the baby's beautiful. All babies are beautiful. I sit back and all babies aren't beautiful. I've seen some babies that are ugly. Not my boys, but hey, I have seen some ugly ba- babies. So my wife doesn't like this point, but it's, it's just true that kids are selfish. They want what they want, they want what they want it now. Right now, we're still going through, you know, we have a three-year-old, so we're still going through the terrible twos and threes. And I'm like, that's human depravity right there. My older two have learned how to share a little bit. He's starting to get there, not there yet. Explosion's coming. Kids teach you, because kids are humans in the wrong form before we got all socialized and stuff. They know how to hide our depravity better. So we have this human depravity. Why does it matter with race? Our human depravity is going to lead us towards solutions that, that serve us and people we like and not see the weaknesses. And if those solutions punish other people unfairly, we're less likely to see that. Let me just sort of refer to this. Uh, I'll talk about human perfectibility versus human depravity. Human perfectibility. Now, this is developed through some of the Enlightenment thinkers, and it's a, it's a focus in, in humanism. Humans will become better with education. Some people talk about how when we educate people, they will become better. They'll become less racist. They'll become more round, well-rounded. They'll become more giving, more generous. Education, lack of education is the problem. Humans are rational creatures who can be conceived to be better. There's a rationality that we can appeal to people's rationality and make them better, that, that we're logical. They did not have very small kids. People have said this. Uh, if our insight, be it anti-racism or colorblindness, is accepted, we can move to the end of racial alienation. Because if you believe humans are perfectible, you just need education, you just need education the right ways. And both of these systems do this. Both of these systems say, look, if you become, if you do what I say, we will deal with racial problems. The anti-racism. About a year ago, I posted on Facebook just a question because, you know, I'm raising three boys of color. And I posted on Facebook a question about how do you, because the reason why this question came out was I was starting to deal with my oldest on the birds and the bees. And I realized there's a lot of materials on how you talk to kids about sex, but not a lot of materials on how you talk to kids about race. And so I just put a Facebook question out there for people who are raising kids of color. How do you approach that? 
And what I got was some, some good advice, but also a big pushback from people saying, why do you want to talk to your kids about race and racism? Bringing up race is the problem. Why are you doing this? You should just tell, you know, help your boys become good, strong Christian men, and, and that's good. You don't need to bring up race. So what that shows me is that people who are into colorblindness, that is, they believe that when we get everyone on board, we will deal with racism, all right? That's human perfectibility. We don't have this sort of utopia on race when we get everyone on board. Now, the same thing is true with anti-racism. And that you have people who say, look, when we get people to, to promote ending whiteness and ending white supremacy and, and this sort of things, then we will, we will figure it all out. So the same thing is true both ways. That's the notion that we can educate people into this sort of racial utopia. Human depravity, though, says that that's probably not going to happen. Humans are inherently selfish, and that's not taking away with education. Education is an interesting aspect. There's actually some research out there by my colleague that shows that when you look at whites and you look at how much education they have, the more education they have, the less likely they are to be racist when we measure them by surveys. But then we look at where they actually live and send their kids to school. The more education whites have, the more likely they are to send their kids to schools that are racially homogeneous and live in neighborhoods that are not interracial, that are not racially mixed. And this is not because of income, because they control for income. They can control for income. Whites with more education send their kids to schools with more white kids, and they live in neighborhoods with more whites. So you can use education, and people will say the right things, but they don't necessarily do the right things. Only by accounting for our desire to protect our own self-interest can we deal with group conflict. Human depravity reminds us that I don't have all the answers. Only holding each other accountable can we find solutions for racial alienation. So, y'all brought me here because I'm an expert on race. I'm a race scholar. I'm a Christian. All those sort of things. And I'm telling you, I don't have all the answers. I think I have some good answers. I think I have some great answers. But if I get arrogant and thinking that, look, if everyone just does what I tell them to do, we'll solve things, then I'm falling into this pattern here. So I think I have something to say in this, but I don't want to be arrogant enough to think that I have the final answers. And this leads to then to uh, what I've called the mutual accountability approach. A lot of times I call it collaborative conversations because I think that's more amenable. And that's this, a Christian-based approach whereby we recognize that people of all races have a sin nature that has to be accounted for. Now, one of the reasons why I don't have all the answers is I am likely to see things that's gonna benefit people and people I like more. Thus, everyone has to work towards healthy interracial communications to solve racial problems. Our problem is we're, we talk past each other, not to each other. And when we're talking, we're debating in our minds how we can get one over on this person on this debate rather than understand where they're coming from. And seeing, can we learn something from them that we bring to this conversation? And then we try out these solutions and we try to force it on people. And that's not sustainable because if people don't accept your solutions, they're going to sabotage your solutions. So this is a mutual accountability approach that, that I've talked on how we have to try to recognize this, this short. Okay, empirically, what can say? And by the way, let me just say this on the on Christian-based approach. I, 
I think my Christianity has inspired this. I think that this is something that is generalizable to people outside of Christianity. And, and the example I used last night in the dinner was forgiveness. I think forgiveness naturally flows from, from what we understand as Christians. But if you're not a Christian and you, and you learn how to forgive others, you're going to be a happier person. And research shows that clearly, that people who forgive are happier people. Okay, empirical work. Under the right conditions, interracial contact helps alleviate bias. We know this. That if we have, under the right conditions, contact with people of other groups, we are less biased towards them. Having a common group identity increases positive feelings. So to the degree, well, we just had the Olympics. USA. Now, I mean, I'm not as much in the Olympics as I used to be, probably because I'm tired all the time. I'm a six, four, and three-year-old. Uh, you know, I sleep through the games now. But we sort of pull together. And, and, and actually, research shows that that creates positive feelings towards other Americans. Now the Olympics is over, we can go back to hating each other again. But then we, we, we tend to have these sort of positive feelings. Families with a collaborative orientation, in other words, they, have, they engage in collaborative conversations. They, they, they work with one another instead of trying to compete against one another have more positive interactions and relations with each other. So that happens in families. Could that also be the case in larger society? We learn how to collaborate with one another instead of always being polarized. Let's face the fact, even without race, we live in an incredibly polarized society. What if it was less that way? Collaborative communications and atmosphere of mutual support creates volitional compliance. So when we have collaborative communications, when we uh, learn to support one another, when, when we come to an agreement, we volitionally, we choose to engage and make that solution work. If you force a solution upon me, I'm probably going to resist it. So let's just say, just for the sake of argument, that I did have the perfect answer to racial issues that I could outline this 12-point plan that we, if the United States implemented, it would end all problems. If I come at you and say, you need to accept this or you're an immoral, evil person, it could be the best solution. Some of you are going to go, hey, I don't like that. I don't like you. I'm going you know, to fight against this. You know what? That's normal. And you know what? I got the first solution. And I can be sinful in the way I'm giving it to people. If I engage in a dehumanizing, belittling approach, that's sinful, no matter what I'm saying. So let's just talk about the implications. And obviously, there's more to it than what I'm presenting this morning. And I know we'll have a Q&A if you all want to go into aspects of it. I'm not even approach how to do this in a more practical way. But let's just think about the implications of this approach. Uh, first, the implication is no one has all the right answers. You will get better answers by listening to each other. You know, you may be 90% correct, and maybe you can become 100% if you listen to someone else who brings in a, a different approach. We need intentional efforts at collaborative conversation. So it doesn't normally happen. I think that we could develop... It's like exercising, you, you develop certain muscles and you develop certain 
practices and you can get better over time. But just on our own, we don't normally do some of the things that we would do playing a sport. You just have to practice it. So it has to be intentional. It's not, hey, that's a good idea, and then you go on with your life. There's intentionality to it. The needs of everyone must be respected. One thing I'd say, what if you could get 80% of what you want instead of 100% of what you want? And you get 80% of what you probably want the most. Would you take that? In exchange for that 80%, you also get 80% of the people supporting you. Or you get 100% and half the people trying to sabotage your efforts. You only get to that 8% if you respect the needs of everyone. Doesn't mean everyone gets everything they want, all right? No one's gonna get everything they want. We just need to put that aside. If you, if you have to have everything, you're not gonna be able to do this. In fact, part of doing this is, lear is learning about what's really important to us, and what's things that we can go do without. Skills of active listening and productive communication is, is valued. And that's something I've not gone into, but there are skills to develop on how we can listen to us. You know, this active listening, this is something that could be useful uh, in communication in other parts of our lives as well. So, and work is towards solutions that are win-win instead of win-lose. We reject the polarization in our society that says that we have to have other people lose so that we can win. We're gonna do this, we need to head in that direction. We look for ways in which everyone can feel like they win. We feel good if everyone feels good. And doesn't mean we get everything or they get everything, but we feel good if everyone feels good. It's a different approach than what we're seeing today. I think this is a more Christian approach we're seeing today. And the church does this, people will notice that we're doing something different on race and something that's more productive. Okay, with that, 